Well, good morning. I want to begin by talking about a word that used to be everybody said, yeah, I should do that, but I don't really want to. But now when they hear this word, they say, yeah, I don't want to do that, nor do I think that I should do that. The word is evangelism, right? And in a recent survey done amongst millennials, over 50% of millennials said they think it is morally wrong to evangelize. Morally wrong to share their faith. And yet in that same survey, 94% of the millennials said they think that meeting Jesus is the best thing that can happen to somebody. Do you catch that? (laughs) The tension that exists there? 94% say, yeah, meeting Jesus, best thing that can happen. 50% say, but it's morally wrong for me to share my faith. Why that discrepancy? Why do people not want to conduct evangelism? I've got to be honest and just tell you from my own life, as a pastor, that survey would be true of me, right? I I think the best, one of the best things that can happen is that you meet Jesus. And yet I also, I wouldn't say morally wrong, but I am often scared to share my faith. Some of this is my own personal story. A lot, a lot of members of my family would consider themselves atheists or universalists. And they'd say, you know, Jonathan, he's a nice guy, but he's, he's wasting his life as a pastor. Or they might say, Jonathan's a hypocrite and terrible person for leading people astray by telling them there's only one God and only one way to God. So I carry that with me in the back of my mind often when I think about telling others about Jesus. And it's, it's hard for me. So I know that's not everyone's story, but it sure seems like culture has changed to where people are scared or think it's morally wrong to do evangelism, to help people meet Jesus. We're going to start a three-week series talking about meeting Jesus, and we're going to be focusing on some pieces and aspects of evangelism, and what is it like to meet Jesus, and people who met Jesus, and how their lives were forever changed. So we're going to spend some time working on that, and I'm going to argue that while culture may have changed, God's heart for the lost has not changed. And the heart of God is that people would meet Jesus. The heart of God is that people would meet Jesus. So we're going to begin our story today. We're going to look in the book of John, chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there, or use your phone, or whatever your device is. We're going to be, I'm also going to have the words available on the screen, but we're going to spend time in John chapter 4 and look at a story of a woman who met Jesus and how that changed everything for her. So let me begin with a little bit of context from the book of John. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 18. It tells us that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. There's a tension in the book of John, which basically says God is spirit, right? He's not a physical being. God is a spiritual being. And we as humans are physical beings, and we cannot know God. We cannot approach God. We cannot meet him. So God must come to us. And he does that in the person of Jesus, who the incarnation becomes man, fully man, fully God, and interacts with us so that we can know God. He reveals God to us. But yet Jesus is constantly met with problems as he interacts with people because there's the spiritual world that God is in and there's the physical world that humanity is in. And Jesus is constantly taking physical things and using metaphors, imagery, symbolism to help people see that it's not just the physical, but the spiritual that matters. So keep an eye out for that as we engage in our text because we're going to see Jesus coming to help people meet God. So again, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to begin reading right there. 
It begins uh, with this. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making disciples and baptizing more than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Let me pause right there. He didn't actually have to pass through Samaria, um, but it is the way there. So Jesus was in the south. He wanted to go up to the north. Samaria is in between. He needs to go through Samaria. But devout Jews, other Jews, would actually cross over the Jordan River, go to the east, go up through the desert, and then cross back over so that they could avoid Samaria. Because people, the Jews, hated the Samaritans. We're going to get more into it in a little bit. There's a lot of history, a lot of context, but essentially uh, the, the, the nation of Israel was one nation under King David and Solomon, and then the, the, the nation split under Jeroboam and, it, and Rehoboam, and it went to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom in 722 was taken over by the Assyrians, and they ended up intermarrying with, the, the, with their captors. And so they became what the southern Jews, the nation of Judea, Judea, would end up calling the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel, and part of the Samaritans in particular, the Samaritans, they started calling them half-breeds. Like you, and it, there was, it was terrible, but their idea was like, okay, uh, they have not only married others, not kept the pure Jewish bloodline, but they have adopted the other's gods. And they practice what is called syncretism, and they're worshiping God and the God of the Assyrians, or God of the other people who they're marrying. So the Jews looked at them as traitors, right? This is, this is your typical uh, kid who grew up in the heart of downtown Chicago, who grew up a Bears fan, and then says, you know, the Bears don't have a quarterback, and I'm tired of this. I'm going to become a Green Bay fan, right? They became a traitor. They left everything they knew. All right, bit extreme, but I think you get the point. They don't like each other. So many uh, devout Jews would go around and avoid Samaria. Yet Jesus had to go through Samaria, and I think we're going to see why in a minute. But it's because the heart of God is for others to meet Jesus. Jesus had a mission. Continuing along in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So there's a well. And Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is taking a long journey. We see here he's fully man, right? He's fully God. He's fully man. This part is revealing some of the aspects of his humanity. He needs to sit by the well. He's tired. And it's about uh, the sixth hour, which is noon. Heat of the day. Hottest part of the day. Jesus is tired. He's thirsty. He sits by the well. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And a Samaritan woman said to them, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, we've already explained some of the context here. Jesus is crossing all sorts of barriers to go to Samaria. But then he crosses another because there's a woman who comes to the well. And a few pieces we need to know about this is women, they had to come to the well. It was kind of the, um, the job that most women had is that they would come to get water for the day. Usually they would do it early in the morning when it was cool. They would come in groups. They'd spend time together. It was a social event. They'd come get their water. They'd go back. If they didn't do it in early morning, sometimes they'd do it in the evening. Again, a social event. But no one comes to the well in the middle of the day because it's hot and it's hard work. And you need well for the beginning of your day. You don't need it starting at noon. You need it earlier. So this woman was clearly seeking isolation. 
There was something she's hiding. There's some shame that she is carrying. Something that she doesn't want others to know, that she doesn't want to be around other people. So she comes at noon when nobody else should be there. And lo and behold, there's Jesus. And so she's probably doing her thing, and Jesus asks her a question. And again, not the right thing, but the culture of that day is that uh, you don't talk to women. And uh, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, and he's talking to a woman. And then he says, I have a need. Would you help meet that need? Would you give me some water? The woman's like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to me? And uh, a little bit, you know, surprised at the interaction that's occurring. Jesus is crossing all sorts of barriers, cultural barriers, social barriers, gender barriers. He's crossing them right now. And Jesus said to her, if you knew, verse 10, the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she kind of asks the question rather than like, yeah, let me get you some water. She's kind of like, why are you talking to me? And then Jesus says, you know, if you actually knew who I was, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. Bit of a play on words. We talked earlier about the symbolism that occurs a lot in the book of John. Uh, This is, yes, physical water. It kind of means like running water. The well would be stagnant water that you're going to get in and get out and it's been sitting there. Whereas living water from like a stream or a brook, right? Fresh water. Obviously, physically, the better water. But we also know, and we're going to see this again stated clearly in the text, we also know from other passages of Scripture that living water carried the symbolism, the imagery, the metaphor of eternal life. So Jesus is saying to her, hey, if you, uh, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't just ask me for water. You, wouldn't, you would ask me for living water, for eternal life. So verse 11, the woman says to him, well, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with. Hey, man, Jesus, you got no bucket, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? It's almost like she's mocking him. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she's kind of saying like, hey man, where are you you going to get this water from? And Jesus said to her, he doesn't respond negatively. He doesn't, you know, push back with arrogance back to her. He says, everyone who drinks from this water, the well, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you notice what Jesus does? He helps address a felt need. She's here for a purpose. She's here to get water. And Jesus says, I've got better water for you. Water that if you have, you don't have to come back here again, which putting herself in these shoes, this woman obviously wants to avoid coming back here and getting water. I mean, not only is it work that you have to do every day, but it's extra hard for her during the heat of the day. It's lonely. It's humiliating. It's shameful. She has to do it on her own in isolation. If she could avoid going to the public place, if she could just stay out of the picture, be unseen, be unheard, not be ridiculed, yeah, that's what I want. So Jesus addresses the felt need that she's feeling, which is water that she doesn't need to keep coming back for. Now, she doesn't seem to quite get that this is eternal life, even though he says it clearly. Because look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
which is great. I mean, if we're looking at this as a model of evangelism, Jesus is crossing all sorts of barriers, geographically, socially, gender, all the barriers. He's crossing them. He begins by addressing a felt need that she has. He captures her curiosity. Then he says, no, what you really want, you think you want water. There's something deeper that you actually want. It's a spiritual water. And she's all set up and she says, yes, give me this water. And what does Jesus do? Let's pause because let me just say, I know what to do. I'm a pastor. I got this down, right? If you just turn back a chapter to chapter three, Jesus had a conversation with a man who was the totally opposite of this woman. In fact, these chapters are meant to kind of play off of each other. And that, the, the man came at night. The woman here comes at day. The man was a religious leader. This woman doesn't, you know, is not a religious leader. That man was popular and well-connected. This woman is socially alone. That man was supposedly morally upright. This woman, we're going to learn, is morally broken. Like polar opposites. And when he is having questions about how to get this water, Jesus answers him completely differently. There's no one right way to do evangelism, if you will. Jesus knows the person. He knows their needs. And as he talks about the felt needs and then the deeper needs that this woman has, I would have gone back to chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, hey, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, (coughs) me, Jesus. And uh, if you believe in me, you can have eternal life. You can have the living water. There you go. Mission accomplished. Evangelism done. Yet that's not what Jesus does. Now, maybe I could think Jesus is wrong, but actually it's me that's wrong. So let's look at what he's doing. He changes the subject. It's like, Jesus, what are you doing? She's all set up. She wants to hear about the living water. Tell her you're God. Tell her that you're what she needs. And instead he says, go call your husband and then come here. Really, Jesus? That's the line? Go call your husband? Verse 17, the woman said to him, I have no husband. And you have to almost pause here because there's a bit of, you know, stuff going on where there's, uh, we talk about all the barriers that Jesus is breaking and crossing. Even at this moment right here, customs in these days were that uh, you go to the well and there's a lot of betrothal stories that occur um, around wells. You could think of, you know, Jacob and Isaac and there's others that it's like, oh, what, what's Jesus doing right here? Is he like, is he finding out if she's available? Like, I mean, the reader is questioning, what's, what is Jesus doing? Why doesn't he just tell her? Why is he asking about her husband? She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus goes after the fact that she's had five men who are husbands and the man she's currently living with is not her husband. Why is he going here? (laughs) You know, sometimes when people tell you something that's really awesome and you think, oh my goodness, you know, maybe I can get it. And then you start to realize all the reasons why you don't deserve to get it. Right? It's almost like Jesus is setting her up to say, the excuses that you have, the shame that you're carrying, the, the sin, we don't like to say it, but it's like the sin, the brokenness, the guilt, the shame that you're carrying. I see it and I know it. And you don't have to run from it. Jesus takes the very things that are the ugliest part of her, the things that she wants to keep hidden, and says, I know what they are, and I'm still talking to you about living water. And even as an aside, isn't that what Jesus does for all of us? We all have sin and brokenness and shame and things in areas of our lives we don't want others to know about or wish we could hide or keep secret and hide, suppress, deny. Jesus knows what they are. He sees them. He says, I love you anyway. And there's a beauty to that because when we are seen for who we truly are and there's nothing that we have to hide, we're totally exposed. And then someone says, I love you anyway. 
doesn't that mean something all the more? So Jesus starts to have that conversation with her. And there's, again, some backstory in this. Did she actually have five husbands? Uh, you know, tradition was with, from the Samaritans that they had uh, given themselves and intermarried with over five different large nations. So is this a bit of a metaphor, just, you know, st standing for the Samaritan nation as a whole? Or is this literal? And we could go lots of different directions with it. But I think the reality is Jesus is after her. Jesus wants her to have eternal life. And as we're going to see in a little bit, Jesus wants the nation, the people of Samaria, to have eternal life. This is exciting. So the woman says to him, Sir, I'm sorry, the woman says to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. There's been a progression here. Earlier, he was a man. You a Jew. You're a man. You're sitting at the well. You need water. Jesus was a man. Now she's like, oh wow, Jesus is a prophet. The revelation of who Jesus is is growing on her. Not just a man, yes a man, also a prophet. Look what he knows. How does he know this about me? And rather than sit there and talk about, okay, how did you know that? Like you knew the deep things about me. She's like, I don't, I'm not going to talk about that. I mean, and of course, it's what we all do. It's what I would do if you bring up my deep, deepest, darkest sins. I'm going to be like, well, let's talk about something else. So what does she do? Let's throw in an objection. Um, our fathers, the Samaritans, we worshiped on this mountain. Pointing right here, you could see it. It's the mountain where the Samaritans would worship God. But you say in, that in Jerusalem, meaning you Jews, you Jewish people, you say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. It's kind of like, okay, I don't know how you knew that about me. I don't want to talk about my sin and shame. Let me throw the biggest, baddest, you know, most controversial subject of apologetics at you right now. Let's get off track and let's distract Let's get away from this. And so basically what she says is that the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem at the temple, and uh, the Jews wouldn't allow the Samaritans to come worship at the temple. So the Samaritans started their own place of worship in Samaria, at this mountain right over here. But yet the Jews were also saying, well, you can't worship with us, and that mountain's illegit, just like you're illegit. You're, you can't do anything either way. There's no way you can please God. You're, you're done. We, we do not like you, right? It's just, there's no winning here with the Jews. And I love Jesus' answer. Because he could have gotten caught up in apologetics. He could go lots of different routes, but look what he does. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain here in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. For you worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know. For salvation comes from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, there's a lot there. It's, it could sound a little bit confusing, but essentially what Jesus says is, okay, you want to throw out an apologetic question? You want to talk about this? Let me give you the answer. Actually, the answer is, it's from the Jews. Apologetics matter. I can give you the answer if you need it. Sure, but don't get distracted by that, because you know what? This mountain that you worship on and the Jewish temple that they, the Jews worship on, both are going to become obsolete. People don't worship God through a temple and a place and a physical location. They worship God through me. This is Jesus speaking. You want to get to God? You go through Jesus. That is what he is saying. He's saying it's not just a physical worship. You have to worship God who is spirit. And you can't get to God who is spirit unless you know the truth. And then when you know the truth, you can worship him in spirit also. You need the living water. You need Jesus. You need me to worship God. That 
is what Jesus tells her. And then notice the woman's progression. She goes from seeing him as a man to seeing him as a prophet. And now she declares in verse 25, I know that you are the Messiah. The one, I'm sorry, she says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, the one who is coming, who will be called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am. Your language, your version there might say am he. It's easier in English. But the Greek is ego eimi. I am. But you, if you are familiar with the scriptures, you know that's the name God gives self-revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. That's the name God gives of who he is. This is Yahweh, God the Father, and Jesus is saying, I am. It's not missed on her. And uh, it's amazing to me because Jesus was just in chapter 3 with a religious leader who, who was a Jew and a Pharisee and did all the things right. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to them. Jesus hasn't revealed himself to the disciples yet. This is the first time in scripture that we see Jesus revealing who he is. And it's to a broken, sinful woman who's a Samaritan. All the things that you could do wrong in that culture. That's the first person Jesus chooses to reveal who he is. I am. Okay, so what's going to happen? What will she do? Will she fall down and worship? Will she, will she declare him as the Messiah? Like, okay, ready, ready for the next part of the story? And of course, the disciples show up and kind of like ruin it. Um, the disciples, verse 27, the disciples came back and they marveled that Jesus was talking to a woman, but no one said to, any, said to him, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, I love this, come and see. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. I love this. <laughs> the disciples show up. There's a break in the action. They're kind of like, okay, Jesus, what are you doing? And the woman leaves the water jar. The very reason why she came here she came seeking isolation and water. She leaves seeking people and leaving behind the water. And she goes into the town, the people who she's trying to avoid, the people who she doesn't want to be known by, the people she doesn't want to be seen by. And she says, you have got to come see this man. He told me everything about me. He, could he be the Messiah? Come and see. I love the invitation. We see this all throughout the book of John. If you start looking at it, everyone who interacts with Jesus, they can't help but say, come and see. And after they've come and seen Jesus, they can't help but go and tell. Just this natural progression. So the people, they come. Now there's a little sort of like side story, right? So we're on our main story. What's Jesus doing here with the Samaritans? Why is he talking to the Samaritan woman? Why is he even in Samaria in the first place? And then a little side story, the disciples come up and like, okay, Jesus, not really sure what you're doing, but hey, we've got you, your food. You hungry? And Jesus is like, I am sustained by something greater than physical food. The physical stuff that I'm pursuing of food is not as important as doing the things that really sustain me, which is doing my Father's will. You know what my Father's will is? The fa my Father's will is that I meet people. <laughs> the Father's people is that others meet me. <laughs> the Father's will is that I go. The heart of God is to help others meet Jesus. And Jesus is doing that, even to the people of Samaria. And they're like, okay, okay, you're not eating. And then Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's like, look, look, disciples, let me tell you, the work that I have been sent to do, my job, my mission is to help people meet me so that they can meet the Father, so they can know God. 
And guess what, disciples? Your job is to help others meet me also. And the field is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. You don't even have to go do the work of the fields. You can just reap the benefits. Go and tell others about me. It's kind of exciting. So Jesus is saying, go and talk. And you're like, okay, well, who does he mean by the, the fields are ripe for harvest? And who's he trying to have meet him? And what's going on? And we're not even in Israel where the gospel is supposed to be shared, where you're supposed to do evangelism. What's going on? Well, it's because the harvest is the Samaritans. Which if the Samaritans can hear the good news and meet Jesus, anybody can hear the good news and meet Jesus. There's a verse later where Jesus commissions his disciples and says, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's like, okay, Jerusalem, where you live, Judea, the place, you know, the, the country, Samaria, like your enemies, right? Bears and Packers fans. In fact, it might even be fair to say now, modern day Jerusalem. It's like, okay, go to the Gaza Strip and tell the Palestinians, you get the good news too. We're all one family. It's like, what are you saying? You can imagine the shock that they're hearing at this. And yet, look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town, believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. The woman practiced evangelism. She had said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. The idea right there is abide with them. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And so Jesus did stay. He did abide for two days. And many more believed because of his words. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of you or what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that, it is, that he is indeed the savior of the world. Let me begin by stating the natural progression. It went from Jesus as a man, tired. She addressed him as a Jew. To Jesus as a prophet. Wow, you know things you shouldn't know. To, is he the Messiah? The one who was sent from God? To, he is the Savior of the world. He's God. The progression of revelation of Jesus revealing himself. And he does it to the Samaritans. And I love this language of staying with them or abide language. All throughout the book of John, there's this abide language. And the idea is that God is a vine— and that those who call themselves followers of God, those who've met Jesus, abide with him. They attach themselves to the vine. And then what happens is they naturally bear fruit. They don't try and bear fruit on their own, attached, detached from the vine. Rather, it's because they are attached to the vine that fruit is the natural progression. And the abide language is what God calls people to. And so what we see is that the Samaritans actually practiced what's called hospitality or welcoming of Jesus. They said, stay with us, abide with us, let us get to know you, sleep where we are sleeping, eat what we are eating, drink what we are drinking, be with us, let us meet you, let us know you. And because they practiced, practiced that hospitality, Jesus does the unthinkable and he does stay with them. Broke all the customs, all the rules, Stay with the arch enemies. I'm sure the disciples are thinking, what have we gotten ourselves into? But the heart of God is that people meet Jesus. All people, not just the religious and the moral people, but those who are far from God. God's heart is that all people meet Jesus. It's a powerful story, and there's more to it there. But I want to give us Three applications for us to close with. Three things I want us to walk away from as we have heard this story. And the first thing I want to tell you is I want you to join the mission. Join the mission. The mission is that the heart of God is that other people meet Jesus. 
<laughs> this is our church mission statement. Help people discover life with God. In fact, if you look at any church, it's the mission statement of, of any gospel-teaching, Bible-believing church. They might use different words because we like to sound originals, right? You know, but it's the same mission. Help people discover life with God. Join the mission. Tell others about Jesus. Practice evangelism. I think sometimes we get caught up, I get caught up in thinking, well, when I practice evangelism, I need like a PhD in apologetics for just why I went to church. Because if I go to church, I've got to explain my political views, my moral views, and all these other pieces. You know what? It's not about having all the right answers. It's about bringing people to the one who is the answer. <laughs> Bring them to Jesus. That's what the Samaritan said. They said, you know, at first we believed because the woman told us we got to come. There's a part that she played. But eventually they believed because they abided with Jesus. They meet Jesus, and you can't walk away any other way but being changed. So my challenge to you is join the mission. Help people discover life with God. Practice evangelism, right? Tell others about Jesus. Help people meet him. My second um, application for you today is to abide in Christ. If you walk away from this sermon, you say, okay, it's about doing more, you know, pick myself up by the bootstraps, do more, do more, do more, works, works, works. Well, the works are part of it, right? Jesus says, go out there and reap the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Let's go, go, go. Yes, but it happens because of the abide language. And it's not only in this text, the abide language. It's all throughout John. But Mike said this in one of his Friday emails, our senior pastor, and he mentioned, you know, if you're out there and you're a branch and you're trying to bear fruit and you're detached from the vine, you don't bear fruit. We're not out here trying to just, our goal isn't to bear fruit. Our goal is to be attached to the vine. It's to abide in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, the natural repercussion is that fruit is born. (laughs) It's like, wow, when you know Jesus, you can't help but tell others about Jesus. Come and see Jesus and then go and tell others about Jesus. It is a natural love. (laughs) Right now, uh, I've got three young kids, and when people ask, how's the family? The first thing I do is I whip out my phone, and I show my adorable children, who, thank God, look more like my wife, which is awesome. But it's like, okay, I can't help. I love them. I want to tell others about them. I want them to see them. I want them to also say, yeah, those kids are cute. Like, it's just the natural overflow of who I am and what I love. I want to share about it. When people talk to you, have you abided in Christ enough to where the natural overflows you want to tell them about God? You want them to meet Jesus? It's a part of who you are. It's not fake. It's not forced. It's not a political argument. In fact, even going back to the idea earlier when Jesus answered her political question, her, you know, controversial question, but he said the big picture is that you meet me. Sometimes we get all caught up in secondary issues. Well, what are we going to do about this? And how do we define that? And how do I, you know, how do I tell people about this? Our goal is to make the primary issue the deal. We want people to meet Jesus, not get distracted into secondary issues. Not that the secondary issues aren't important. Jesus answered a question. He knew apologetics, but that's not the main point. Keep the main thing the main thing. Abide in Christ. Abide. So let me even ask some of you today, do you know what it means to abide in Christ? If not, we're going to have a service in a few weeks. We're going to practice a baptism. It's an outward uh, sign of an inward reality that we identify as being ones who've, been, who've met Jesus and can't help but live differently as a result. I'm invite you. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Think about baptism. And for those of you who say, yeah, I am a follower of Christ. I do abide. Are you spending time? Is he your first love? Are you practicing the spiritual disciplines? Can you know him in such a way that it's a faith that overflows and you want to tell others? Join us in a mission. Tell others about Christ. Abide in Christ. Love him. And then let that be the overflow of why you tell others about meeting Jesus. 
And then third, I want you to start with one. Start with one. Jesus started with a Samaritan woman. He crossed all sorts of barriers. Geographically, politically, social economic barriers, gender barriers, race barriers. I mean, you name it. What was he thinking? He was thinking, I love and I want her to know me. And I want others to know me. And let's even pause and just say, that's what God has done for us, right? We are all been in the place of the Samaritan woman where we are undeserving and unworthy of the good news of meeting Jesus, yet he has sought us out and pursued us. He sees us in our brokenness and shame, and he says, I love you anyway. Come and taste and see that I am good. Come experience this living water. Abide in me, and then you can't help but go and tell others. So I want you to start with one. Who is one person that you know you need to have a spiritual conversation with? You need to invite the church. Maybe church is too big of an obstacle. Maybe you just need to invest in them and care about them and love them enough that you're going to be in their life. In a week, uh, the Vernon Hills campus is having a picnic in the park from 11 to 1. We're going to have bouncy houses and free food and face painting and games. And it is low-hanging fruit for you to say, hey, come out and join us at the park. It's outdoors, social distance. We're going to have food, meet people. It's investing in people, but it's being intentional to start with one person who you know you need to tell about Jesus. So invest in them. Invite them to that event. Anyone is welcome to come join us. Uh, more information will be available on the website. It doesn't have to be that. It's whatever it is. Invite them over for dinner. Start with one person. Think of who they are right now. And then come up with a plan of what are you going to do to start with one. God's heart is that people meet Jesus. Will you join us in the mission? Will you abide in Christ? we start with one. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have pursued us, that you have sought us out when we were far from you. Lord, that I, that we are undeserving of the greatness of your love, and yet you see us in our brokenness, you see us in our shame, you have crossed and gone to great lengths to love us, and to pursue us, and to make us yours. God, may we be excited about joining you in a mission May we be excited about abiding in you and loving you and being loved by you. And may we start with one and may it spread so that all people of every tribe, tongue, and nation might bow before you and realize that you are God and worthy of our praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.